If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me once again this morning uh, to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, three weeks ago we began a study of this first century letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. The first church planted by Paul in Europe. And for all of you geography geeks, uh, Philippi, which is no longer a city proper, uh, is situated in the northeast kind of quadrant of Greece, kind of directly west of Turkey, directly south of modern-day Bulgaria. If you know that part of the world, which I confess I don't know real well, I had to look at a map uh, to recognize where Philippi was. We've yet to get out of chapter 1 in this study, uh, but really that's not of concern because number 1, I just remind you that chapter headings and verse divisions are not inspired. They're not part of the original uh, book of books of the Bible. Those have been added later and we can see this morning as uh, as you see in your bulletin that we start at 18b. Uh, this morning, you can see sometimes the verse divisions get a little wonky, and uh, we don't know exactly what was going on when those verses were uh, were made or or were divided. But secondly, there is so much to unpack in these uh, first opening verses in this first chapter. And so uh, last week, for those of you who are here or watched online, I remind you that uh, Philip. Uh, did a wonderful job leading us through the previous verses as Paul reminded the church, both the church of Philippi and us here today, of the unstoppable gospel. That in spite of difficult circumstances, even in spite of improper motives, that God will build His church. God will declare His works. He will ensure that Jesus is proclaimed. So now this morning, as we pick up where Philip left off last week, after beginning with a declaration of how Paul prays for the church at Philippi, he now asks that they pray for him and his ministry. Remember where where Paul is when he writes this letter. Paul is in prison, likely in Rome. He is under house arrest. He is chained to a Roman guard 24-7. No privacy. No freedom. And very little comfort. And yet, in this incredible circumstance that Paul finds himself in, he models for us, he teaches us by showing us the way how to view and bear suffering in our world. And that's what I want you to think upon this morning. Paul is teaching us, he's modeling for us, he's reminding us how to view and bear suffering in our world. And you don't have to be in prison for this to be relevant. You just have to be breathing. (laughs) You just have to have a pulse. You have to be alive because we all to some degree bear some sense of suffering, of the brokenness of our world, of the brokenness of ourselves. And so Paul gives us this morning a way of viewing all of life, 
Paul is not just saying put on rose-colored glasses. He's saying let's put on Christ-colored glasses. So that's where we're headed this morning in this next section of Philippians chapter 1. As always, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 1. I'll start in verse 18. The second half of verse 18. Listen as I read. Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Years ago when I served as a youth pastor, I would at times... Often, when we would gather as a youth group, I would use a little book of questions uh, to help break the ice. Sometimes it's hard to get teenagers to talk, uh, especially when they're together in awkward situations. And the book was called, Would You Rather? Perhaps some of you are familiar with it. I think it's actually been made into a, a board game now that can be played. And Would You Rather, this book presents... Dilemmas, difficult choices between two options. And so we'd start off silly. Would you rather be rich or famous? And we'd talk about that, let them talk about it. Would you rather live in L.A. or New York City? Get to know them a little more. Would you rather drink Coke or Pepsi? Would you rather be covered in spiders or snakes? And then maybe we get a little more thoughtful. Would you rather give up your favorite food forever or TV for two years? Oh, no, there's a tough one. Would you rather see your best friend jailed for 10 years or you yourself go to jail for two years? Would you rather go blind or deaf? Would you rather? Well, you like me to know where I'm going with this at the heart of our passage this morning is a dilemma, the most fundamental of dilemmas for the Apostle Paul. It's found in verse 21. Do I live or do I die? Do I live 
or do I die? Now, now with that, we, we, we listen to that with modern ears and we think, what? That's not even a dilemma. That's not even a question. We choose to live. Of course we choose to live. Always we choose to live. I mean, think about it. Think about the lengths that we go to in order to protect and preserve ourselves and our loved ones to avoid or at least to delay death at all costs. And yet, what if we could live our lives without such angst? What if we could live in our brokenness with joy even? No matter what is going on in the world around us. What if we could live without fear of the thing that our world is most afraid of? That's what the Apostle Paul claims is possible this morning. How is it possible? It's possible because of the Gospel. Because of Jesus. This is not some artificial uh, game face that Paul is putting on for the believers here in Philippi. This is genuine hope. This is not wishful thinking. This is confident expectation that Paul has. And so as we meditate on these verses for the next few minutes, I want to do so around two simple but profound statements this morning. And the first one is this. Jesus makes life worth living. Jesus makes life worth living. The dilemma, as it's presented in verse 21, we're going to look at the first half of what's summed up in this phrase. To live is Christ. It's the first half of the dilemma. To live is Christ. Now for many of us in this room, this is a familiar phrase, maybe one of the most familiar verses in the Bible, but for others here, that doesn't make much sense. To live is Christ. And so I'd like to unpack those four words using four more words, and they conveniently begin with P. I didn't do that, although I am a Presbyterian pastor. I didn't do that. It just fell out that way. The first one is this, purpose. Purpose. Jesus gives us purpose. You see, for for Paul, life or death is really not the main issue. The main issue for the Apostle Paul is the glory of Christ and the faithful witness to that glory. That is what, for Paul, makes life life. The fact that he and all of us were created for another, not for ourselves. As he says to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Or as he said to the churches at Galatia, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And so Paul says, I don't live for the fleeting comfort of this life. I don't live for my own temporary legacy. I live, he writes in verse 20, that Christ will be honored in my body. Literally, we could say that Christ is made large in our bodies, that Christ is magnified in our lives. And indeed, our forefathers, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Simply put, we are the looking glass that helps others see the glory of Jesus. This happens, Paul says, in my body, through my eyes, through my hands, through my feet, through my tongue, the way I live and the ways that I don't live. Jesus makes life worth living because He gives us purpose beyond ourselves. Something greater. His glory his kingdom, his cause. And so when we, when we take that phrase and we, we put a blank there, living is about blank, we already know how Paul completes the sentence. Living is about Jesus. That's how Paul completes the sentence. So the question then, how do we complete the sentence? What is living about for you and I? Living is about comfort. Living is about security. Living is about pleasure. Living is about making my mark on the world, whatever that means. Living is about making a name for myself. Or living is about Christ. To make the one who created us and saved us and loves us. To make him known. To make his name great. That is a life worth living. So Jesus makes life worth living because he gives us purpose. But The second P that Paul draws our attention to is power. Jesus makes life worth living through his Power. Now, what am I talking about here? I'm talking about verse 19. Look at it there with me if you have your Bibles open. For I know, Paul says, that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus doesn't just say, go, make my name great, good luck. No. He said to his disciples, I am with you to the end of the age. He said, pray like this with confidence and boldness in your time of need, crying, Abba, Father. And so Paul recognizes it's not through his own striving. It's not through his own giftedness. No, it is through the privilege of prayer and through the promise of the indwelling Spirit of God that his work is accomplished. Paul's not arrogant. Paul is confident in his God and in his work. And what exactly is that work? Well, that's the next P under this first point. It's progress. Progress. Purpose, power, and progress. That's what Paul says explicitly in verse 25. What he is committed to in them. He's committed to their progress and joy 
in the faith. This is the, the fruitful labor that he speaks of in verse 22. In other words, Jesus makes life worth living not only because he gives us purpose, not only because he gives us power to fulfill that purpose, but because he is changing us and he is changing others around us, making us more like him, making us more like Jesus. You see, the dilemma that Paul faces here in Philippians chapter 1, it's a dilemma between himself and others, right? If he stays on earth, if he lives then he labors with purpose and power to make Jesus' name great. He and his circumstances and especially his suffering is being used by God for the good of others and for the growth of the church. God cares so much for his church, we might say, that he will keep Paul alive for them. Paul kind of knows that. And Paul wants that for them. He who began a good work is still at it. And so when we think about progress, progress in the faith, what are we talking about? We're just talking about sanctification. What is sanctification? Well, let me help define that concept, that word, again, from our Westminster Larger Catechism. What is sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's grace whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation of His Spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life, and all other saving graces put into their hearts, and those graces so stirred up, increased, and strengthened, as that they more and more die unto sin and are raised up into newness of life. That's a mouthful. But that, my friends, is good news. Through Jesus, you and I are being changed. Through Jesus using others in our lives, we are being changed. Through Jesus using us in the lives of others, we are helping them change. Jesus makes life worth living. And that leads us to the last aspect of this important phrase, to live is Christ, and it's this. The last P. Peace. Peace. You see, Paul confidently asserts here to the Philippian church that their prayers and the Spirit's power will turn out for His deliverance, it says in verse 19. But is he talking about deliverance from prison? From the punishment that might be passed down on him by the Roman authorities? Well, actually, while he gives an indication that he believes that he will be with the church at Philippi again, I think he's talking about much more than simply deliverance from prison, from Caesar. You see, Paul actually quotes here from the Septuagint. 
The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And he he quotes from the story of Job. Job, the man who suffered greatly and yet didn't lose his confidence in God's vindication of him. And so in Job 13, verses 15 and 16, Job says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. This will be my salvation. This will turn out for my salvation. It's precisely what Paul says here. Exactly what Paul says here. And there is the confidence. Paul, like Job, is certain that the end of his suffering is secure. It's purposeful. And it is secure. I mean, Paul can hope for a favorable outcome on earth, but he can't be assured of that. He's thinking beyond the verdict about his future. No matter what the Roman tribunal decides about him, he knows that everything is heading towards the heavenly court, and in that, his fate is secure. Because of that, there's peace. You see, here's how Paul sees this working. God's people will pray, The Spirit will be present. Then by God's grace and help, He will faithfully bear witness to Christ with no shame, verse 20 says, but with courage no matter what the path. That stand in the Gospel will be for their good, emboldening them, and He can do all of this because of what Jesus has done for Him. Because of the peace that is a certainty. He had already written assuredly to the church in Rome, Romans 5.9, Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? So what effect ought this have on all of us? Well, I think simply put, Jesus is worth going all in on. Jesus and only Jesus makes life worth living. Hear me, kids. Hear me, youth. Without Jesus, there is no purpose. Without Jesus, there is no power. Without Jesus, there's no real godly progress in our lives and without Jesus there is no ultimate peace to live is Christ what a profound statement Paul says but remember Paul in this would you rather dilemma that he finds himself in he's not completely sold on the answer that our world would be to live or die So let's close for just a moment with the second profound truth. And it's this. Jesus makes death worth dying. Jesus makes death worth dying. To live is Christ. And to die 
is gain. On January 8, 1956, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Uterian were speared to death in Ecuador as they tried to reach a remote Indian tribe for the first time ever with the gospel. Many of you know this story well. It was national news. Their deaths were labeled as a tragic nightmare. But a young widow named Elizabeth thought otherwise. She was the wife of Jim. And she wrote, the world did not recognize the truth of the second clause in my husband's credo, one that he wrote in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's a beautiful story because those men went into that jungle little concerned about whether they would come out. It's the same lack of concern that Paul expresses here. In fact, in verse 23, he makes his preference perfectly clear. He is ready to die. After all, here... Here there is an earthly broken tent. There is suffering. There is sin. There is fighting. But there, there is glorified bodies. There's no tears. There's feasting instead of fighting. Listen to the old Puritan Richard Sibbs. He says, why should we then fear death? It is but a grim sergeant that lets us into a glorious palace that strikes off our bolts, that takes off our rags, that we may be clothed with better robes, that ends all our misery and is the beginning of all our happiness. But there is another thing driving Paul. More than that, more than what Richard Sibbs just said, one thing trumps it all, and it's another P. It is the present of Jesus. The presence of Jesus. He longs to be with His Savior. That is the gain that He is speaking of. Ultimately, it's not about golden crowns or streets or even to escape the chains that He's enduring, but to be with the One who has saved him, the one who awaits him, Jesus himself. He uses a term here that's translated as depart, and it's used in Greek nautical settings for a ship that's hoisting its anchor in order to sail away. He told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So think with me for just a moment about the closest relationship that you have. The closest relationship that you haven't seen in a long, long time. What is that longing like? How strong is it? Would you literally die to see them? (laughs) Probably not. That would defeat the purpose. But that's where Paul is at with Jesus. That's where I want to be at with Jesus. That's where I want all of us to be at with Jesus. So the question that Paul presents to us 
through this dilemma is are you ready to be with Jesus? Is he a friend that you know and that you long to be with? Or is he unfamiliar to you? Is he kind of like that distant uncle that you don't know very well? Kind of awkward to talk to at times. Or worse yet, is, is he a stranger? Brothers and sisters, life, life is hard. Our world is full of suffering, but Jesus makes it worth living. And yes, death is final and there's an element of scariness there, but Jesus makes death worth dying. That's what Paul exudes here when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is, this is the joy that he wants the church to live in. This is the message that He wants the church to share. May the Holy Spirit stir that kind of affection in us and give us grace to live like this. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You this morning for Your servant, the Apostle Paul, for his deep love and affection and the profoundness of this statement that he makes Father, we thank You for the truth that because of our Savior, the One who was born and lived and died and was raised again, that because of You, Jesus, life is worth living. Because of You, Jesus, death is worth dying. Because of You, Jesus, we need not fear, but we can actually have joy no matter what our circumstances. Father, we confess our weakness. and We plead once again for Your grace and for more of Your Spirit that we might live like this that we might progress in the faith like this to a watching world that would take notice. Oh Father, this I pray for our own good and for the glory of Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen.